Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Now, Julie, normally we don't we do not do a lot of reading from the Bible on this podcast, but I've got a couple here I want to hit everyone with because it's relevant to what we're talking about. Both of these are from the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the first one, Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus explained, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the little ones. The little ones being the little ones being the kids. children. Yeah. Okay. And then there's another one where he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think there's a little more there about needles and rich people. But uh needles and rich people? Yeah, yeah. Like it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, okay. All that you know, lots okay. of uh, the you know, New Testament wisdom that uh, Jesus is spouting in in this book. But these two passages in particular are interesting because they both talk about the this childhood nature this this there's something special about children that enables them to see the world as it really is to to see through the grown-up uh, bs and and get at the truth of the matter and it's something yeah. you see uh, i mean throughout uh, human history i mean you see it a lot in, in fiction chronicles of narnia susan becomes too sophisticated a little too grown up for Narnia. Can't go there anymore. Puff the Magic Dragon, as you'll remember. Uh, little Jackie pa- Paper reaches the point where he can't see Narnia. The children in Stephen King's It, mm-hmm. you, you, to, in order to defeat this uh, evil clown shifting monster, right. you have to have this spirit of a child. You have heart. to have kid-o-vision. Yeah. And uh, My Neighbor Totoro, the, the forest spirits, uh, adorable as they are, you've mm-hmm. got to be a child to see them. And and so and there's, of course, this long-standing thing. Like the, there's the, the whole... Kids say the darndest things, right? Where like Bill Cosby was an actual kid. show, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And mm-hmm. I think it was it was an older show even before Cosby took it over, but he's the one most remembered for it. But the idea being that you bring a kid on and you just let them talk, and they're just going to drop truth bombs on you <laughs> because they don't know any better. Yeah. Though I found it interesting that Bill Cosby is also quoted as saying, "Is saying, quote, a person with no children says, well, I just love children.' And you say, why? And they say, because a child is so truthful, and that's what I love about them. They tell the truth." And Cosby goes on to say, but that's a lie. I've got five of them, and the only time they tell the truth is when they're having pain. (laughs) Even that sometimes can be a lie, as I have discovered. Yeah, you're you're a mom. What's your your take on uh, the the innocence and the the truth bombs of children? The truth bombs. Um, Well, I mean, I think everything is is new to them, right? So immediately kids see things in an entirely different way because they're piecing together context. Mm -hmm. And being able to see things um, from an entirely new perspective, as we know, is a completely liberating thing, and there's a power to that. And we've talked about that before, that as we age, we tend to uh, let some of that uh, slaw off of us, right? Because we're so used to sort of establishing a pattern, going with that, and then moving forward. Mm -hmm. But to uh, paraphrase Picasso, I think he said he took his whole life to think like a child artistically, to reach that place where he could once again delve into novel ideas or novel representations of the human experience. And in fact, I am looking at Picasso right now because in our podcast booth, I don't know if we've ever mentioned this before. I don't think you have. Not in the podcast. Uh, well, we have a couple of photos in the podcast booth, and the one that I get to stare at is Picasso in his underwear. Yeah. So I think about this idea a lot so that I don't think about Picasso in his underwear. You covered him up with a bat for a while, but then it, someone moved it. Yeah, I did. I covered up his private parts, and then someone moved it. Um, but there is this, I think he puts it really well, that you know it takes a lot of effort 
to try to bust out of these uh, constraints that we, because we have to, we place in our lives um, and to be able to think in a way that is completely mind-blowing and new. Yeah, I mean, there, there is something about the creativity alone of a child. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. There's a, in Atlanta, there's, a, there's an improv company called Dad's Garage, mm-hmm. uh, and they do you go at night, you often get a lot of very blue material from these improv actors. They're getting up there. They're blue meaning dirty. Dirty, yeah. They're mm-hmm. doing free association, and it's and all sorts of out, outlandish things are coming up that I couldn't even mention on the podcast. But they would all they also do a show, and I think they still do it, called Uncle Grandpa's Hoodily Storytime. And in this show, it's the same improv actors, these same same guys and gals that are just really tearing it up at night with raunchy material. But now they're in the AM. And they ha- they're performing to an audience of mostly children, <laughs> but they're also doing improv, and they're mm-hmm. getting tips from the audience. So they'll they'll ask the, the kids in the audience, hey, what should the name of this princess be, and what should the story uh, that we tell be called? And uh, I, I've been to it a couple of times, and there, it is always amazing because from these children, they're able to come up with the craziest ideas, like stuff that these 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 experienced uh, and highly creative improv mm-hmm. uh, actors would never be able to pull out. Like like I remember one when, when they asked what should the princess be called, and the little girl said you, that the princess's name should be quote Batman the girl, which, which is <laughs> right, which is incredible. Right. You know, it's like that kind of like strange free association that you're just not going to get from an adult. Well, yeah, I remember seeing this TED talk, and uh, I'll throw this up. Uh on Facebook or in a post, uh, I don't remember the name of the TED Talk right now, but they were, talk- they were talking about accessing again this this childish thinking, mm-hmm. and they were talking about um, a, an arts program in which the kids were making different kinds of clay models, and one of the kids came up with Bacon Boy, and <laughs> it is so. I've got to throw up an image of this. It is awesome, you know, sort of a superpower figure. And again, these are not things that we as adults go around thinking like, I'm going to sculpt Bacon Boy today yeah. and, and really start to think about this mythology of this character. But that's what kids do. And um, if you have ever taken a walk with a toddler anywhere from two to when they start to get preschool, four or five years of age, you know there is no linear path that this <laughs> is going to take a long time because everything is going to be picked up and inspected and stories will begin to just organically arise from their experience with with their environments. And uh, we have talked about this before, but I thought it would be good for us to mention that this is this idea that when we are adults, we have a focus that is that's pretty laser focused, this flashlight focus. Right. But kids, starting as infants, grow into that flashlight focus, but they begin at the lantern light experience where everything uh, is it has light cast upon it and they're considering everything in their world yeah like one thing that comes to mind when I think about this is the uh, the uh, Alan Robe Grillet novel jealousy mm-hmm. where the entire book and this is not going to really sell it well for most people uh, but the entire book is this guy staring at a wall or occasionally staring out at his, his banana plantation and trying to figure out whether his wife is having an affair with another banana plantation owner and so a lot of it is him staring at, at a smear on the wall where he killed a centipede. Mm-hmm. 
and just obsessing and obsessing and obsessing. It's that laser focus, you know. And but he's getting nothing done the whole novel because he's just obsessed with one thing. And I feel, and as adults, I, we often do that. Mm-hmm. If it's not a an actual smash centipede on the wall, then it's something like you know some you know guy starts losing his hair, and then that's the thing they come back to over and over again. Oh my goodness, what's happening to me? Am I? I'm getting older. I'm dying. You know, uh, we end up obsessing over something, or we get obsessed with with one particular material thing or another, or a, or we attach our ego to a sports team or something. Whereas, how many how many child children do you know who are rabid sports uh, fanatics, so who are rabid fans of a particular team? You know, how many religious fundamentalist children do you know? How many neurotic uh, children do you know where they're obsessed with, uh, I don't know, their weight gain? Uh, yeah, that's just not really something yeah. that you, you commonly see until they get a little bit older, right. right? They get into grade school. The thing about this, and psychologist Allison Gopnik has talked about this, is that uh, when you're an adult, you have uh, you know certain neural connections that have been pruned away because mm-hmm. you don't use them anymore. And so if you are that character in the book who is staring at the wall, well, you're going to be squirting a lot of neurotransmitters on that part of the brain mm-hmm. to really keep it activated and focus. But if you are an infant, your entire brain is just steeped in neurotransmitters. It's marinating in it. And this is what she says results in this information-rich world, this lantern vision, trying to take every single thing in. Yeah, uh, she mentions in her, in her writing that in the past it's been difficult for us to try and study exactly what's going on in the, in the, the minds of, of young children and certainly in the minds of, of unlanguaged children and infants. And, and even if you can get them to talk, it's going to be a stream of consciousness mumbo-jumbo about, mm-hmm. I think her example is birthday parties and horses. Obviously, for for girls and for for little boys, birthday parties, uh, fire trucks, and boogers. You know, it's. I mean, to to, to, to boogers fall... go across gender. Oh, my does friend. it? Is yeah. that that a cross gender? Yeah, thing? Okay. fire trucks too. But yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so I found that interesting because a lot of her studies is about getting beyond that and really finding ways mm-hmm. to not only look at what children and infants are saying. Uh, well, certainly not infants so much, but what, get beyond what children are saying and also look at their actions and how they're interacting with the world around them. And what she gets at a lot is the idea of this plasticity, which we've talked about before. Yeah. The, the ability of our mind to change, the ability of ourselves to to uh, to roll with the punches. Because when you are a, a, a zero to three-year-old, mm-hmm. you have to really be able to roll with the punches. Uh, and certainly, even in, even in a very comfy environment if you you know grow up in a very civilized environment a very safe environment there's still a lot of a lot of trauma around you when you're that alert to the world and certainly in in less advantageous environments you've got to be really hardy to survive yeah she uh alison gopnik actually has this great quote about what it's like to be an infant Mm -hmm. and uh she said and this is the kind of more romanticized version of it as opposed to just you know having to deal with all the noise and and the different stimuli she says it's like being in love and perish for the first time after you've had three double espressos yeah so there is this idea you are being bombarded by all the the different uh elements out there uh she also mentions a study of of Eastern European orphans who were adopted by uh, parents in the UK, and about how in 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 most of the cases, not all, but in most of those cases, and these these were kids that were they were growing up in like extreme um, situations of uh, uh, you know they're just not exposed to enough sensory information, mm-hmm. enough personal interaction. They're, they're starved for all of this, but they're so they, but the the child is so resilient. Uh, zero to three, that most of them were able to just really bounce back uh, without any kind of uh, significant problems. And she says that this is because of this different consciousness that kids 
have that mm-hmm. they grow out of and again into the more flashlight focus. Uh, but she is saying, and this is this is kind of looping it back on how you can try to retain a bit of this for yourself as as an adult. Is she saying that the creative people are able to hold on to this different consciousness to be mm-hmm. able to inhabit this mind space where you can transfer uh, your consciousness from flashlight to lantern and begin to take more things in. All while being a reasonably um, responsible adult, of course. One thing that comes to mind here, uh, and so we're comparing adult artists with young children. Uh, one thing that instantly comes to mind here is children running around in their yard naked, and then artists inevitably running around in the yard naked, or like our friend Picasso here <laughs> in a diaper. Um, because <laughs> it does kind of his his because, underwear does look like yes, a diaper. Because art, like childhood, is kind of a judgment-free zone. And as it turns out, that plays into this mind of a child, this creativity as well. Yeah, and in fact, in kids and teenagers, frontal lobes, the seat of judgment, right? Mm -hmm. These are the last pieces to be fully connected to the brain, okay? Or be fully connected to parts of the brain that deal with judgment, inhibition, self-awareness, cause and effect, acknowledgement. Um, All the things that are sort of the bane of our existence with with teenagers Mm -hmm. that we normally look at as, oh, man, they just, they're crazy. They're, you know. Look at their hair. What are they thinking? Yeah, yeah. They're just, there's not a lick of sense in that kid. Um, That actually can be a real boon to kids uh, because they lack, again, this idea of this inner judgmental voice Mm -hmm. that can sometimes stop us in our tracks when we're trying to do something novel. Um, So, again, Trying to silence that part of the brain is really important. And we have talked about this before, but surgeon and jazz musician Charles Lim wanted to look at this a little more carefully to say, how, how are musicians so adept at uh, just getting in there and improvising? What makes them able to do that? And it turns out that uh, musicians are really good at turning off the part of the brain, again, this uh, dorsal, lateral, prefrontal, and lateral orbital regions, dimming that, and instead bringing online the medial prefrontal cortex, which allows them to express themselves better. Right. And so the frontal lobes, they dim a bit because they're like, yeah, you know what? I don't need you right now. I really need to kind of flex this part of my muscle. So he saw that in all these MRI scans of these musicians, which really pointed to this idea that certain things are play. In fact, neuroscientist Rex Jung also talks about how highly creative people usually have less white matter integrity and less brain tissue in the frontal lobes. Okay, that doesn't mean that they're, you know... Uh, less intelligent or that they lack something. It just means that the frontal lobes, again, the seat of judgment, uh, it's not nearly as taxed with neural connections, these glial cells, white cells, and therefore those people are a bit more unencumbered when it comes to creating something new. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to talk about the importance of play in this idea of dun, 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 uncertainty in our lives. All right, we're back. We're discussing, again, the minds of children. Uh, this old idea that children see the world as it really is, or they see it in a, in a unique way. And if we, as adults, can simply recapture some of that childhood essence, and I mean not in a drain essence from a child's skull, in a, like a skexy way, but in an actual, uh, let us, let's change the way we perceive the world and how we interact with it uh, to to improve our creative output. And, and when I say creative, I'm not just talking about finger painting on the wall, but as we'll discuss here, um, 
actual scientific uh, achievement as well falls under this category. Yeah, really engaging critical thinking skills. Yeah. Um, according to neuroscientist Bo Lotto, and he has that great TED.com talk, yeah. he says that uncertainty for adults is, is really problematic. And this is particularly true in the context of, of evolution where uncertainty, you know, not knowing if there's a saber-toothed tiger in, in the weeds over there or if it's just the wind rustling through through the leaves could result in death for us. We need to be certain about certain elements of life. Yeah, that's the thing about uncertainty is that for the most part, most of us tend to want to get away from uncertainty because uncertainty brings potential disaster. Uncertainty as you're walking down the street means maybe I'll get run over by a car. Maybe I'll get mugged. Maybe, again, the saber-toothed tiger will jump out at me. But it's out of that uncertainty that so many amazing uh, creative ideas uh, arise. And the way that we combat uncertainty, of course, is to sort of apply a script to the world, to cling to certain worldviews that that bring order out of chaos. So you look at any particular worldview, and it may, and, and generally it's about positioning yourself, your group at the center, creating a barrier between this group and outside groups. I, we think like this, they think like that. These are the rules of the environment in which I live. These are the people who don't abide by those rules. These are the rules that apply to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we steadily organize. We build a little fort of ideas in which we feel safe against the chaos of the world. And that's that certainty that we're talking about that really helps us to predict how things will come out. But he's saying that for children, uncertainty is a game. And it is a necessary game. Because if you look at animals and humans, all species play in some way. And we've talked about this before um, in terms of the amount of time it takes for uh, a creature to mature. We've talked about the New Caledonian crow, which mm-hmm. has a relatively long childhood as, as a bird. And then we've talked about the, say, just, you know, your run-of-the-mill chicken. And the consensus there was that the New Caledonian crow really needed that time to mature because it was pretty sophisticated in terms of its tool use. Mm-hmm. And whereas the chicken, not so much, doesn't need a lot of time to play, to to have a long childhood. And as we said, one ended up in in a pot. (laughs) The other one, the New Caledonian crow, ended up on the cover of Nature magazine because it does have these very sophisticated uh, tool-using abilities. So when you look at children and you look at uncertainty, it really is necessary for kids to throw away the rules and to begin to, like a scientist, approach their environments and play with that environment. Yeah, it's easy to look at children and play and and just sort of discredit it, to say, oh, that's just children wasting time instead of doing chores, which they should be doing. Or to look at it in terms of, all right, well, that's that's a boy and he's playing with tools and beating stuff with hammers he's just he's just kind of practicing for his life or oh there's a little girl and she's playing with a baby doll well that's just her rehearsing that's a oh, look there's a kitten fighting another kitten they're just rehearsing for their their lives as aggressive hunters but there's a lot more going on specifically as uh, Bo Lotto points out play be it whatever the kitten's doing mm-hmm. what the child is doing or what an, an adult uh, artist or scientist is engaging in boils down to five different things. First, celebrating uncertainty. It's not you're not entering the environment and saying saying, "Oh, there there might be something I'm unsure of outside of this fort of ideas." It's about venturing outside of that fort of ideas and seeing the world anew. Uh, it's about being acceptable to change, engaging in this 
in this world beyond the fortress of ideas and realizing that what you see may change you. It may change how you assemble your fortress of ideas when you return to it. Mm-hmm. You have to be open to possibility, open to the possibility that you're going to change, open to the possibility that your preconceived notions are going to fail. You need to be cooperative, yeah, certainly if you're venturing outside of that fortress of ideas with other individuals. And finally, intrinsically motivated. You're doing it because you want to. You want to see beyond this fortress of ideas that you've used to understand the world previously. Now, as um, you have probably witnessed before with kids, uh, the, the rules can change pretty quick, right? right? They can throw them out or sometimes just completely change them. Like one second the floor is lava, then it's, then it's a never-ending pit, and then it's okay to walk on. Which is great, right? Because it kind of gives them... It's not very good narrative consistency. No, nobody gives them a certain amount of flexibility. And you had mentioned, like, giving a girl a baby doll and giving a boy tools. Um, Really, you give a kid a stick, and they are going to turn it into something in in which to... A sword, a snake, yeah. Yeah, a sword, a snake, to interrogate the world around them. And I see this again and again with my daughter making pulley systems out of, you know... um, Buckets because the buckets are full of pixie dust and she needs to skewer some pirate or something. Um, but I think it's really interesting that Lotto looked at this play, this mm-hmm. uncertainty, and then he sought out a group of children ages 8 to 10 because he wanted to know, could they approach uh, an experiment or could they create their own experiment and could we actually get something on the other end that we could use? Because, again, he's saying that those those five circumstances that you talked about, this openness, this um, you know, intrinsically motivated cooperation and so on and so forth, he's saying that this is really the play of a scientist. This is what scientists do. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's easier to make the initial comparison to creative work because, like, I think if, like if I'm writing a story or something, I'm entering it with an uncertain mind. I don't know where characters are going to mm-hmm. end up or what's going to happen exactly. But you have, like, maybe one rule or two that you're trying to stick yeah, to. And yeah. And those rules may they break by the time <laughs> I finish it. I mean, I... I I can't think of the number of times that I've I've started writing a story and what I end up getting is entirely different because I've because you got to be open for, to it to change, and then certainly in science when you start looking at these these five things from a scientist's perspective, imagine a a scientist goes out to figure out why something in the world works the way it does or something in the the outer cosmos works the way it does. You're going to go in there with some preconceived notions, but you have to be able to to dispel them and ignore them if need be. Because, again, you have to celebrate uncertainty, be acceptable to change, open to possibility, cooperative, and intrinsically motivated. Well, Lada wanted to see if these kids could see themselves differently through the process of being a scientist. Because, again, when you say, let's let's do some science, that's pretty weighted because people approach it in thinking that science is something that is separate from them as opposed to, well, it's actually uh, science really plays to our strengths as human beings. Yeah, this this comes into sort of the puff the magic dragon thing again. There's kind of this uh, false idea that when you're a child, it's all interacting with imaginary creatures and engaging in this creativity, but then you learn to be a grown-up and you learn science, and then you put all that crap behind you. But, as as we're discussing here, being a scientist is as much about embracing that spirit of childhood uh, as it is about growing up and becoming more mature. So, Lotto worked with uh, 25 children uh, in conjunction with her headmaster, again, ages 8 to 10, and they studied black wanton bees to see if these bees, again, this is something the kids came up with, could solve problems in a similar way that humans do. And the kids asked the questions and they actually devised the experiments. Um, According to biology letters, which published the paper, the children's findings show that bees 
are able to alter their foraging behavior based on previously learned colors and pattern cues in a complex scene consisting of a local pattern within a larger global pattern. This is pretty sophisticated for an insect. Um, and then in biology letters it says, as there has been little testing of bees learning color patterns at small and large scales, res- the results contribute considerably to our understanding of insect behavior. The kids managed to not only publish a paper, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about how they did that, but to, to get a novel understanding of an insect. And what I love about this is that the paper actually begins with Once Upon a Time, which largely written in kids speak. <laughs> but the the methodology that they came up with, the observations, the hypothesis, all of this is so solid that mm-hmm. they you know, the people who actually ended up reviewing this and writing a commentary on this could not deny that they had found something that was very valuable. Well, it reminds me of your daughter's interaction with the trilobite. Yeah. And uh, how she, granted, she gave it a, she gave it a name, called it Gonk, but then also created this story about how it was going down to the water and, and eating plants, if I, if I remember correctly. So yeah. it, it wasn't living in a fairy castle or anything. It was She was in creating a, a, a plausible story for that creature based on her knowledge of the world. And, well, and, yeah. and more importantly, of her observations of the world. Yeah, and she had a context for it, and she, of course, ascribed emotions to it and all this, yes. this sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, you just give kids a couple of things, and they will run with this and uh, and begin to see the logic inherent in there. Uh, I wanted to also point out that the paper that they, they came up with actually had hand-drawn figures and tables in it as nice. well. And if you check out that TED Talk... Um, by Lotto. You'll also uh, see a presentation by Amy O'Toole, who at the time was a 12-year-old student who helped uh, run one of the science experiments that was inspired by Bo Lotto's science approach. And uh, at the age of 10, she became one of the youngest people ever to publish a peer-reviewed science paper. And she was uh, also at the time the youngest person to give a TED Talk or to help give a TED Talk since you get the second half. But that was really uh, motivating as well because you know, it comes down to the idea that when you got these kids in the room, you got them thinking about science, they were already asking questions that were significant to science. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty life-changing for a lot of those kids because, again, Lotto wanted to see how they would see themselves after going through a scientific process. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, help them to gel this idea that science is, again, a part of them and, and not a part, not some sort of... Yeah, it's not uh, something you learn. It's something you are from the earliest. Right, if, if anything, right. as we grow older, uh, more many of us, we forget science rather than uh, have to learn it. Well, it just seems like something that we look through the window at, yeah. right? But Lotto said this, and I thought it was really interesting. He said, the point is what science does for us. We normally walk through life responding, but if we ever want to do anything different, we have to step into uncertainty. That's what science offers us. It offers the possibility to step into uncertainty through the process of play. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote, oddly enough, by Timothy Leary, um, who we've talked about before. Well, you can say he's childlike, well, was childlike. Yeah, I mean, I mean he, was, you know, he was a very free-thinking dude um, for some of his other faults aside, but uh, he has this great quote where he says, to think for yourself, you must question authority and learn how to put yourself in a state of vulnerable open-mindedness, chaotic, confused vulnerability to inform yourself. Tune in. Yeah, and of course the thing is, uh, you know, you need to remind Mr. Leary that ultimately you don't need any uh, pharmaceutical help to achieve that end. (laughs) I mean, all you have to do is either be a child or try and think like a child, and you can achieve that that level of uh, 
of chaotic, confused vulnerability. Well, here's the thing about Leary is that he was a trained scientist. Yes. And so he had a background in the best ways to go about thinking critically, but also thinking in a way that could really open up the mind. And when I think about ways in which you can look at probabilities and try to predict the future in, in a new way or an interesting way, I think about Bayesian modeling. Yes. Now, this is uh, something that is named after the Rev- Reverend Thomas Bayes, an 18th century mathematician. And according to Alison Gopnik, studies show that kids, at least unconsciously, are Bayesian uh, masters themselves. Now, here's the thing about Bayesian logic is you can really get into the weeds trying to understand what it is. Essentially, Bayesian probability theory is a branch of uh, mathematical theory that allows one to model uncertainty about the world, and about the outcomes of uh, various aspects of that world by combining common sense knowledge with observational evidence. Okay. If it sounds very mechanical and straightforward, that's because it is. It actually figures into some of our AI constructs that we're working on today. It's a central part of trying to figure out how, how an intelligent creature thinks. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that Bayesian modeling actually came online in, I think, the early 90s, around the same time that psychologists were beginning to look at kids Mm -hmm. and wondering if this Bayesian modeling was inherent to them. And it's funny because AI, artificial intelligence, and kids really go hand in hand because people who are interested in AI are interested in looking at kids as the root model. In other words, if we're going to build a, a computer that can think like us, act like us, make decisions, then we want it to be based on this root material a.k.a. kids. And, it, you know, as we're moving forward into the future, it, we, we inevitably come back to this idea of, of robots solving problems, computers solving problems. We want to know what the weather's doing in 10 days. Throw a computer model at it, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just going to become more and more like that as we move forward. So it's, it's fascinating to think that the AIs that we're building today to solve the problems of tomorrow, uh, children are already born with, that, with those mechanics in their mind. As they get older and they become adults, it becomes clouded. So in, in a way, mm-hmm. adult humans are having to build robots that think like children so they can solve the problems that they no longer can. <laughs> yeah. And one of the reasons we can't yeah. is because of preconceived notions and, these again, these, these fortresses of ideas that we build. Because whether you're looking at questions of, I wonder who's going to win uh, the election. Mm-hmm. I wonder... Uh, uh, I wonder what choice I should make in my life regarding my employment. Uh, any number of, of questions that may come up. We're, we're handicapped against applying Bayesian logic to them because we have these, these worldviews in place, these preconceived notions, this fortress of ideas that we have to somehow navigate. And it, it could be because the, all those preconceived notions, they end up flying the data. Yeah, it's true. And, um, you know, kids can really be better problem solvers when it comes to Bayesian logic because as you say there are certain things that as we get older we have these priors they get stronger and stronger and they actually need to in some ways to help us survive um, our experience in the world but uh, we're already relying on that too heavily and and less on new data right so we rely more on our past experiences and these strong priors are really actually very comforting to us but uh, Bayesian inference inference excuse me considers both uh, new evidence and prior probability of hypotheses, and this gives Bayesian learning a character- characteristic combination of stability and flexibility. So here's the key to it re- working really well in science and with kids. In science, uh, if, if you have a really crappy hypothesis, you're going to throw it out. Mm-hmm. 
kids are going to do the same thing. They don't have emotional investments or really strong priors. So this allows them to go through the information much better. Okay, so how do we know that kids are better at some reasoning when it comes to to Bayesian modeling um, than adults? Is it because they say the darnest things? It is. Okay. <laughs> uh, Alison Gopnik, again, uh, who is pretty much the centerpiece for this podcast, she used something called a Blickick detector. This is a machine that lights up and plays music when certain objects, uh, which are controlled by the experimenter, are placed on top of it. So you place like a cube onto this little platform, and it lights up and it starts playing music. Right. You might have different shapes. You might have a star or mm-hmm. a cube or different colors. And so the idea is that you begin to understand the relationship of what makes the machine work. Right. Well, what she did is she asked both adults and children separately uh, in separate experiments to try to figure out these objects and how they would make the machine work. I mean, essentially, she was saying, go make this machine work. Well, the kids were a lot better at it because what what the uh, adults did is they observed what the experimenter did with the blocks to make the machine work. And those were really strong priors. And so they were holding on to these, this idea of what happened in the past, whereas the kids were able to take every single angle of the blocks, the colors, put together you know, various points of data to figure out how to best make this Blicket machine work. Another example of this is give an iPad to a child and your grandparent and see who figures it out first. You know? <laughs> yeah, no in, doubt. In, in some, not to say that's a, a complete divider, because you're going to have some um, older people that really jive with new technology and, again, are really able to, to pass that Blicket test. Like uh, my wife's grandmother in her 90s uses a Kindle all the time. Which was, is awesome. Was using right? a Kindle since the beginning, like an early, uh, early adopter of that technology. Well, and see, there's, again, there's this idea of holding on mm-hmm. to this bit of your, your childhood thinking or your, your childness or this openness to new ideas and yeah. experiences. And not saying, up oh, a machine for a bug. Give me my old books. Just give me my paper. You my know? paper, right? And just yeah. move with my finger. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can do the same thing with Kindle. Um, all right, so there's this idea, another Picasso quote, that everything you can imagine is real. Now, I would say that I would add this. You just have to make it fit into that Bayesian model. So anything you dream up could be real Mm -hmm. as long as you can make it fit into the constructs of our physical world. And that's where Occam's razor comes in. Yeah, Occam's razor is this idea that basically the simplest answer is the one that is probably the most likely answer. Yeah, Occam's razor, it's interesting because the term first appears around 1852, centuries after the death of the guy it's named after, who was a 14th century Franciscan friar by the name of William of Oakham. Uh, really fascinating dude. Um, if you've ever read The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, the main character in that, who's a Sherlock Holmes-styled monk named William of Baskerville, he's always talking about his friendship and camaraderie with Oakham's way of thinking. Because despite being a, a Franciscan friar, he was, a, you put you imagine, all right, well, he's going to be a really religious dude. He's going to see the world through li- religious goggles. And to a certain extent, you, as we've discussed in a recent podcast on witchcraft, that's going to be a part of the way you see the world. Uh, you just can't help it. That's the world you're born into. But Oakham was a, a realist and what we call a nominalist. Uh, nominalism is the theory that there are no universal essences in reality. Uh, he argued that only individuals exist rather than uh, super-individual universals, essences, and forms. So 
To break that down in a really succinct way, I turn to uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. Of all places, they have a really nice uh, paragraph. I'm just going to read this. They say, Exaggerated realism invents a world of reality corresponding exactly to the attributes of the world of thought. Nominalism, on the contrary, models the concept on the external object, which it holds to be individual and particular. So it comes down to... How are you going to understand the world around you? Are you going to start with the ideas about the world and work down to the world itself, or do you start with the world and work out from there? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a large part of, of uh, Occam's Razor right there, is, is looking at this idea, this possible theory for what's happening, and then asking yourself, which hypothesis conforms to the world that we observe and not the world that we think exists? Right, and this is the basis of the scientific method. Right. And so when we talk about science and scientists and play, this is really essentially what we're talking about because in a way this is a bit of a thought experiment, although with a thought experiment you're just trying to kind of throw everything out there. You're not really looking for, for something that's going to stick. Mm-hmm. But it's the same idea that you you try to figure out every uh, hypothesis you can and then you call out the ones that, that don't make any sense or are at least probable. Um, now... This is really an awesome game to play with kids because it fuels their imagination, but it also gives them the tools to sort through all the data that they have and find uh, a line of logic. And it, it's a particularly a nice game to play when they're at that age where they're asking a bazillion questions about how the world works, right? Yeah. Like, why is, the, why is the sky blue? Uh, well, because uh, uh, it has to do with the reflection. Oh, why is that the case? Then why is that the case? And, and you can either give up. <laughs> like the lady I observed at a zoo once when the child asked, Mommy, why does the Komodo dragon, uh, why does he look like that? And she just responded, because that's just the way God made him, honey. Right. They're, the, the, they're... Just a complete non-answer and not engaging with the child's curiosity about the world, but mm-hmm. instead saying, here is a big wall of the fortress of ideas. Let me erect that in, in the way of the horizon. See, I'm going to say that that parent probably had low blood sugar. Well, so okay. before you engage in Occam's razor, <laughs> make sure you eat something because you're going to need that energy. Because kids will ask a million questions, as yeah. you say, and it can get a little bit like, oh, 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 you know, like after 15 million questions. But, uh, you know, obviously my daughter asked me a ton of questions every day about everything. And um, one of the things that I noticed is she's starting to enter into that territory where the unknown is frightening her. Mm-hmm. So she's really looking for answers. She's looking for comfort. Well, like the skeleton thing you mentioned. Yeah, she's she's very frightened of skeletons, even though we've talked about how they're inside our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they help us to walk, so on and so forth. They're very practical things. She said, I don't care. I just don't want to see them outside of the skin. Okay. Which, which is a reasonable request. I mean, what are you, you, know. you going to say to that? Um, but one of the things that d- drives her nuts or has in the past is that she will, she'll hear things on the roof of our house. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it's magnolia pods that are just falling and they're huge and they're i mean they do sound like someone's on the roof yeah galloping squirrels will do that as well yeah oh yeah the squirrels Mm -hmm. uh, it's a racetrack actually on our house particularly in this time of year in the fall but um so if i hear a loud that what i've done in the past is i've said okay you know let's look out the window and see what's on the ground and then we'll observe that there are magnolia pods all over the yard Uh, so then i can ask my daughter and i've done this before which is, hey, okay, what else do you think could be causing that noise? So now we're entering into this idea of Occam's Razor where we're going to gather as many hypotheses as possible. And so she's come up with, before, you know, again, the skeleton. It's a skeleton. It's trying to come down the chimney and get me. Um, Or she has observed that there's construction in our neighborhood, and she said that it's a construction crane, and she thinks that it just came down the street and crashed into our roof. 
Okay. She's already going from from least believable hypothesis to a slightly more believable hypothesis. Yeah, because actually if you count the number of assumptions for all of those hypotheses, you will see that the magnolia pod is one assumption. Mm-hmm. It fell from the tree and it landed on the ground. But a skeleton, well, that is, uh, requires the assumption that even though it's dead and it doesn't have any flesh around it, it's mm-hmm. somehow alive. Right. It somehow has a functioning brain. That's three. It can scale a roof and shimmy down a chimney. That's four, maybe mm-hmm. even five. Um, and then it has some business with us. Yeah. It's got some some reason for coming down the chimney and, and, and the, talking to us. Or the crazy thing about to. that, too, is it makes me think, well, to, to make the skeleton down the chimney idea make sense, you really need a working um, understanding of necromancy, which is to say you need <laughs> yeah. a fortress of ideas that has been carefully constructed by adults to make the unlikely seem plausible. Yeah, you need, so I say five assumptions there, but really, if you, you go into detail, there's probably about a hundred different assumptions there. Right. So then you get to the crane, and now you have the crane down the street scenario that it can operate on its own. Mm-hmm. That's an assumption that it has somehow managed to make its way through four houses and, 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 and still, uh, has momentum, and that it has bumped into the roof, and that somehow, even though it's bumped in the roof, there's no damage done to our house. There's four assumptions. But You're still, right. That's getting better. Yeah, because if, if the uh, if the, the walking skeleton necromancy idea, if that is like, that's like a cathedral of ideas with flying buttresses and stuff, yeah. whereas the, the crane <laughs> moving on its own, that's more like a decent um, cabin in the woods kind of uh, fortress of ideas, uh, modestly constructed but still constructed. Nice, nice. I like that. Yes, flying buttresses as opposed to like a modest cabin. So you present all those, which I've done uh, with my daughter before, and then she'll just laugh and say the magnolia pod because you know she's starting to understand that these are outrageous things. Right. Um, but we've been able to talk about really cool different ways that the world might work, mm-hmm. which is the imagination and the creativity part. But now she has something to hold on to that is concrete, that is logical, that makes sense. Yeah. So she can imagine the flying buttresses and the crazy cathedral of ideas. I mean, everyone wants to be able to imagine something that that rich and and, yeah. and, and just engaging. You know, kind of like, uh, like, say, Dante's Inferno. I love that. That's a cathedral of ideas if there ever was one. Mm-hmm. But when I actually think about how the world works, I, I choose to go with a far more modest construction of ideas. Um, and certainly, at, at times, the, the less the, the less building there on the horizon, the better. I mean, you can actually see the world as it perhaps really is. Now, Gopnik says that these cathedral of ideas, this is really the evolutionary juice of our species. We have to have this imagination. Uh, because she said, you know, think about every single thing around you right now. Think about this microphone in front of us. Mm-hmm. This was once an idea in someone's head. And it was part of their imagination. And they just used their available knowledge to create this thing, uh, you know, given a couple of constructs of what is possible and what is not possible. So, you know, she's saying that if you are um, a human 50,000 years ago, this is incredibly important as well because you're trying to imagine or predict really what the year is going to look for you. So you start to really pay attention to seasons when some animals might be migrating, right? Mm -hmm. And you start to sort of imagine yourself uh, participating in this future self or this future part of yourself. Uh, So again, just all of this is, uh, I think, an evolutionary boon to us, this ability to imagine, create, play, and essentially become scientists. All right. Well, on that note, let's call over the robot and uh, get some listener mail here. The first one comes from a listener by the name of uh, H.A., 
H.A. writes in and says, Greetings, Robert and Julie. Regarding your mention of Bloody Mary in your recent podcast, Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board, I've always personally, albeit humorously, believed that the Bloody Mary myth uh, that she would appear if her name was spoken a certain number of times in front of a mirror was real, but that everybody that's tried it so far had just gotten the number of times one has to say her name to invoke her wrong. I believe the correct number is 333. No, I've never <laughs> tried it. Anyway, thank you for the entertaining and informative podcast. Well, see, there's a there's an interesting uh, cathedral of ideas. That, well, maybe not a cathedral. But uh, let's say there was a modest cabin of ideas, and our listener here built a little extension. Well, yeah, what is half of, uh, if you double 333, what is that? Well, that would be 666. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Curious to know why it would be half of the devil's number. You're thinking that their math is wrong? That it actually needs to be doubled that? Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, Bloody Mary is going to match that number on the other side. Well, it reminds- and, and then the, the <laughs> 666 then becomes complete. Well, it reminds me of pretty much every attempt to predict the end of the world, be it the rapture or something else. Inevitably, there comes a point where that where someone says, oh, well, the math was wrong. We need to do the math co- a little more correctly to figure out exactly when the world's going to end. So I'm sure if, if someone were to count up to uh, 333, uh, there would be a need to revise our predictions. Speaking of, when is the next end of the world? Oh, like now or something? The I Mayan think. calendar one? I think it's happening right now outside the door. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what that was. Yeah. I just thought there was a lot of traffic. We also heard from a listener by the name of Kristen. Kristen writes in and says, Hey, guys, in the MAPS episode, you talked about how humans are just wired to respond to vertical and horizontal and diagonals mess things up. It triggered a memory for me. Three summers ago, I visited my friend in Colorado, and we went to an Old West-type town. They had a mystery house there. You went inside. It started out with the hallway floor uh, slanted at a slight angle, which was fine. And then it opened up into this huge room, and the floor there was at a 45-degree angle. I guess my brain totally shut down because as soon as I stepped into the room, I just fell down into the wall and couldn't move or stop laughing. My friend's dad had to help me out because I could not move. LOL. Uh, it's my favorite memory. Thanks for the great podcast. That's interesting because that draws us right into the uh, episode we did on haunted houses, too. How uh, if you screw around with the shape of rooms mm-hmm. and engage more of that diagonal uh, construction, then it throws us off. It throws throws off our ability to predict what's going to happen, our understanding of where we are in a space. That's right, because we have many more neurons that are dedicated to the XY axis than the diagonal Access. So it makes sense that our brain would like this very clean lines. And, of course, uh, haunted houses like to play with that idea. Yes. So that's fascinating. Thanks for uh, writing into us, Kristen and uh, H.A. We always love to hear from our, our listeners. And if you have anything to add on this podcast, let us know. Um, we know we have a lot of parents out there that are listeners and then many more who have children in their lives and many more still who are very talented artists. Uh, and, and creative people, we'd love to hear from you guys as well. How, do, how does the child inside you come out when you engage in a creative act? Uh, send us an example of what you do, too. We'd love to share it on, on Facebook. And uh, let us know how the young, larval human in your life, how they seem to see the world around you. What kind of questions are they asking? What unique insight are they bringing to the table when they construct their own fortress of ideas? Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.